Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Nathan Rothschild, the 19th century British financier and member of the Rothschild banking family, famously declared, buy when there is blood in the streets, even when it's your own. Given the transmission of the Fed-induced duration shock into technology valuations, there is a sense that 2023 and the next couple of years will be a good time to be investing in early-stage startups. But the seed stage venture landscape has changed drastically in the past two decades. From 2006 to 2010, the total count of U.S. companies that raised seed capital was just about 3,000. From 2016 to 2020, that number exploded to just over 23,000. Simply put, it has become much more competitive and attracted significant amounts of capital. And since early-stage companies are further away from entering public markets, many allocators see that stage as part of a safer strategy. In order to stand out, emerging seed stage managers must have a highly differentiated investment thesis, a thorough pre-deployment process, and a standout team. But it's through their hands-on involvement post-transaction, value creation efforts, and follow-on network that good managers shine. Paul St. Donat is a partner at DLab, a first check discovery fund supporting Web3 and blockchain startups anchored by SOSV, a multi-stage investment manager with $1.5 billion in AUM. Paul and his team are committed to helping Web3 founders at a time when they need it the most, the beginning. They share a core belief that Web3 will usher in a more open, transparent, and participatory world, creating an internet-sized impact. And they want to focus on the infrastructure that will make it truly mainstream and usable. The D-Lab team is disciplined on valuations, specialized in its Web3 expertise, and draws on over 10 years of experience running an accelerator to provide founders with specialized resources, as well as a curated network of vendors, potential customers, and advisors. Paul's own personal story is one of finding purpose through commitment and helping others. Growing up in upper-class Manhattan, he admits to struggling through his formative student years, finding it hard to reconcile academic effort with real-world opportunities. His perspective changed when he took a family friend's advice to take a year off from college and join AmeriCorps to help with disaster relief after Hurricane Katrina and gain valuable skills that help him to this day assess risk and behavior. He honed his allocation and due diligence acumen working on the buy side at a prominent family office, then went on to advising high net worth clients at Morgan Stanley and subsequently joined SOSV, where the idea to launch D-Lab was incubated with his partners. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up in New York City. I'm also half French. My father's from southern France in a very small village near Avignon. And I spent a lot of time when I was younger over there, every break I had. When I was younger, I was always active, I'm always outside playing sports, played a lot of sports when I was younger. I still consider myself to be active, soccer, tennis, basketball mostly. And New York City being a basketball city and there's a basketball court everywhere, so it was easy to step outside. What were my passions when I was younger? I loved reading. I mean, I grew up without a TV, so my parents always had books around. Those books were usually the classics. So I read Count of Monte Cristo, Man of the Iron Mask, War and Peace, books like that. And in terms of growing up, I was very, I don't know if it was restless or rambunctious, but I wasn't very well behaved in school. I don't know if my teachers would describe me as such, but when I applied myself, I did well, but I rarely applied myself with consistency, I would say. I usually gravitated towards, you know, history class, loved studying history, and that continued all throughout college and art history as well, actually. So that's really interesting. So you and I share a common French background. 
who can relate there for sure. And the way I unpack what you just said about being in a classroom and not always just applying yourself, is it fair to say that you need something to be really passionate about? I find this is a common trait with a lot of people who gravitate towards ultimately working on entrepreneurial endeavors, being in a world where you need activities that will captivate you as opposed to having to be a generalist and having a lot of topics thrown at you that you need to apply yourself to. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's hard when you're younger to have the foresight to understand why you're studying and why you need the grades and all those things. I would tend to agree it was hard for me to get excited. I had a fantastic teacher that was super passionate. I generally did well in those classes, but if it was super dry or the material was super dry, I just didn't see the point, I guess, when I was younger. I can 100% relate to this. And I find that, especially since I went to high school in France, what I found were, although the quality of the education was very, very, very good, teachers did not do a good job at conveying in simple terms why you needed to do to learn some of the topics or what those topics would be useful for at a later point. And I feel like it was a failing on their part, not to inflate the blame, but I can relate to that. Would you say you're competitive? I see a lot of sports and probably an outlet to channel some of your energy there. Do you think you're a competitive person? I would say that I am. Yeah, for sure particularly if I'm in a game, even if there's no stakes and I'm trying to win, I would definitely say so. And basketball in New York City, as competitive as it gets, right? Being on those street courts, I think you learn very, very quickly the power of the elbow and you're going to get banged up quite a few times, but teaches you a few lessons for sure. So your high school, then when do you start developing a notion of what you want to do when you grow up? What are the key milestones in the initial part of your career? That's a great question. I would say I was pretty aimless for a while. I went to Hunter College in New York City. And my first year at Hunter College, I think I got like a 1.8 GPA or something. And to get a GPA that low, you, you're you basically not going to class. If you go to class and do the bare minimum effort, you can get like 2.5 or something. So I was pretty aimless. And very unsure of what I wanted to do and was just very everything. I didn't have a goal. And actually, Joshua Kraft's mother, Kathy, suggested I go to do AmeriCorps, which is AmeriCorps, if you're not familiar, is very similar to Franklin Roosevelt's Civilian Conservation Corps. So what I did was I took a year off from college. I entered AmeriCorps. I would divide the United States up into, I think, four regions, maybe five, but I was stationed in the southern region where in Vicksburg, Mississippi, which is a town along the Mississippi River in Mississippi, there was a famous civil war battle there. And I was part of a group of 10 people for a period of 10 months. And we would switch projects every two months. And the types of projects we would do would be like building houses on the Gulf Coast after Katrina for Habitat for Humanity, doing medical surveying in impoverished neighborhoods to see what kind of medical care they're receiving from the government, tutoring foster children, because if you receive money from the government at the age of 18, they can no longer be part of your foster home. So this woman wanted to teach her children that were in the foster home sort of tradable skills because she could no longer provide for them at the age of 18. What else did we, we 
did disaster relief because there was a tornado that had ripped a part of northern Mississippi. So we clean up and disaster relief there and planting oyster reefs on the Georgia coast. So working outside, I was in a part of the United States that I probably otherwise would have never have ventured, being from New York City and meeting people from all walks of life. And throughout that whole process, I really gained focus and I understood the value of college education and how fortunate I was and all those things. So I came back to school with much more drive and yeah, much more focus. After AmeriCorps, since I had a little bit more time before the school year started, I ended up going to Paris and I always loved to cook. My sister's godfather, Guy Monnier, is in the restaurant industry in Paris and set me up for a stage at a famous French restaurant in Paris. So I went over and this is very French. I needed additional paperwork to go work in the kitchen. And I was just going to cut vegetables and take out the trash. You know, I was like 17 or something, but I couldn't do that, which is too bad. But since I was in Paris, I ended up finding another stage at a French money management firm. And that was really my entrance into finance at SFVNELS. And yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about if I started working in a kitchen where I would be today. But yeah, anyway, I finished that whole and went back to school, graduated from Hunter College. And I think I graduated with like a 3.2 or 3.3 GPA. So I got my GPA back up. But that whole year was really a key turning point in my, in trying to find some purpose and drive, I guess is what I would say. I really appreciate how you own it and you talk very candidly about this upbringing. And I think that's also one of the reasons why I always like to start these conversations so that listeners can get an idea for the kind of person the guest is. And I think you get complete with that progression. For anyone who meets you these days, you're the furthest thing from being aimless. You're driven. You have a very clear vision for what you're building for the Web3 space. And so understanding the process that you went through to find your purpose, to put things in relative terms, to find yourself, everyone goes through their own journey. And it's a very interesting journey that you went through. I'm sure that you still, at this stage in your life, carry some of the findings and learnings from that period. Ultimately, we are a product of what we went through. And I think your purpose now and your drive are probably symptomatic of having gone through that process that you just described. So I appreciate you sharing with us that part of the background. But specifically, because I don't want to put words in your mouth, what would you say today, we are at the very beginning of your career, and then I want to hear about the progression. What would you say makes you a good fit for your current endeavor and your current role as a venture capitalist? I guess I would say is part of, you need to work with people. I, being an investor and particularly a very early stage investor, you need to be very good at understanding people, working with people, evaluating people, because particularly at the early stage, it's there's no cash flows or anything like that, or barely a product. So you're really trying to evaluate people. And I think that's where I'm suited for. And I think just based on my upbringing and things I gravitated towards, I think that's what best suits me for the role that I'm in today. Yeah, the pattern recognition in doing the work at a stage where business is really all about the team. And there's really not much yet in the form of product market fit, the product sometimes. 
although it's getting harder to get funded and seeded on the basis of a pure idea, especially if you don't fit the pattern recognition that most successful investors look for. But there's definitely something to be said in that while systematic and it's thorough, it may not be quantitative. It's a qualitative process. It's a process of pattern recognition. So I think all our life experiences and also having seen certain things in the past help us assess compatibility in teams, their ability to have non-overlapping skills, their ability to be accountable to one another and things like that. So it makes total sense. So how did the idea for the business that you're building right now, again, in the venture capital space, how did it come about? And what is the progression that led you to meeting your partners and for the group to come together as it is today? Yeah. So I, um, four to five years ago, I was at, I think closer to five now, but I was at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management and I was working with a financial advisor called Josh Brugman, who gave me my start on Wall Street, so to speak. Prior to that, I'd been at a very large single private family office. But I'd been four years in Morgan Stanley, and basically I decided I didn't really want to be a financial advisor. I wanted to move on and do other things. And there's, I could talk for on and on about why I didn't want to become a financial advisor, but I just realized that being an allocator was interesting to me, but there's certain incentive structures at a firm like Morgan Stanley, and it's the same for every financial advisor at most major banks that I thought would prevent me from doing my job well, I guess. So I was looking for other things to do. And I thought about business school. But after thinking about it, I was like, well, there's high cost and high opportunity cost as well. And I didn't get into maybe the top six to eight business schools. I don't know if it would be worth my time on top of that. And also not very good at standardized tests. I also started taking the CFA, which is another standardized test, but it's a beast and huge respect for anyone that passes all three stages there. And I had actually known SOSV, which is where D-Lab started under the SOSV umbrella, but I'd known SOSV from my time at the family office prior to Morgan Stanley. And I'd actually interviewed there for a role within their food accelerator called FoodX. SOSV is no longer running. And I met the general partner who I work with now, Sean Broderick, at the time. I didn't get that job, but then I can't remember if it was a year later, several months later, they announced that they were spinning up a new group within SOSV called D-Lab that was going to focus on blockchain and Web3. And I messaged Sean Broderick again to throw my hat in the ring, and I was eventually hired. So that's how I got started. So D-Lab was started within SOSV as um, sort of an accelerator. It was SOSV, for context, is a large multi-stage venture capital firm where its focus is that it runs accelerators in certain verticals, that it has deep expertise. So Indie Bio being one of its more well-known ones, which is a focus on biotech, and Hacks, which is a focus on hardware, and then China Accelerator are the three biggest ones. And there's offices in Shanghai, Shenzhen, New York, San Francisco, all over the world that run these accelerators. And then the model of SOSV is that it gets its, it invests in these super early stage startups, helps bootstrap them, continues to invest along the way from pre-seed series C, for example. So D-Lab started within that umbrella, very small effort. We were doing in-person, this was 2018, we were doing in-person cohorts, two cohorts a year. Each cohort was about five companies. 
where we would invite founders to come, you know, do a residency, so to speak, with us for three months in New York City. And that's where I met Sean Broderick, general partner, and the other general partner, which is Nick McPlant. So now. And so what was the initial upbringing from an investment thesis standpoint behind your initial collaboration? How is it different now? Has it evolved? I know you got involved into some Web3 investments a few years ago already. So there was a foresight as to what that could become. Was that the initial impetus or was it something different at the time? Yeah. So Sean Broderick ran Foodex as well. And he has years and both Sean and Nap Nick Plant are both former founders themselves. So not only do they have that experience of bootstrapping a startup into existence and either succeeding or failing, which both experiences are valuable. But Sean Broderick also spent years running FoodX, an accelerator within SOSV, and then was also running Techstars Boston. So he had years and years of experience identifying and investing in early stage startups. So the thesis for starting DLab was mostly just continuing what SOSV is great at and finding and identifying early stage founders working on things that it believes are venture scale and believing that in the future of, this is 2018 and believing in the future and that the market for Web3 and blockchain would grow and use cases would grow and the market would expand and all those things. Today, it's not all too dissimilar. We're still identifying very early stage startups. Think about it like you're hunting for truffles, basically. So truffles are very deep. Well, not deep, but they're buried under the ground on soil and they're not obvious. So you have to brush the dirt off them and make them look nice. That's where our expertise is. That's what we've been doing for the past four years. And that's what we're continuing to do. So we've been pretty disciplined and we're not stretching ourselves and investing in the super mature Web3 startups because it's harder for us to evaluate. And that's not really our area of expertise. So understood. No, it's when we go back to this pattern recognition operating experience that your partners have, right? As you combine all of this experience, the ability to really break down those truffles, right? And dust them and then just peel the onion and look at teams, look at the value proposition, look at the market potential. Something that really on some level got lost in the last few years where a lot of startups were funded purely on engineering or product development without necessarily much thought on go-to-market product market fit. So having operators as part of the team, people who've started businesses before, having that pattern recognition that we refer to seems like a really great combo. So you're really a first check sort of discovery fund, right? You come in almost at inception and go back to the thesis. What is the delineation as what you consider sort of first check discovery stage? That's a great question. It's very subjective. We're not always first check. We try to be. Sometimes we do participate in rounds where there's other venture investors, but we try and stay pretty disciplined in terms of what valuation we would go up to. What we consider to be first check, I mean, of course, if a company's raised millions of dollars or $1 million, for example, there's a certain, you expect the startup to be a bit more refined. And if we're meeting with the startup, and typically that suggests they're raised in million bucks, let's say. Typically, that suggests that the valuation is out of range for us for what type of valuation they're looking for, I guess I would say. But yeah, I mean, in terms of what 
constitutes a first check startup? I mean, you know, we're mostly scanning hackathons. Of course, we have a network of VCs that send us stuff that might be too early for them, or they're looking for feedback that they might be considering, and maybe we'd participate in that party round. But yeah. So what's your investor base anchoring this effort? Who are the typical LPs that you started with and without giving names or anything necessarily, but just trying to understand the investor base that is in existence that you might be looking for and trying to get an idea of, for someone out there who's thinking about starting a venture fund, how difficult is that and how critical is it to have initial anchors? I would say it's super critical to have an initial anchor and we have a great anchor in SOSV which has been our initial anchor and they they played a large part in our in continuing growth. But it's the same advice we try and give our startups. If you can avoid chasing 100 people down for 100K checks, that's great because then you don't have to chase 100 people down for updates or amendments to the LP agreement or whatever it is. So the target is really on either large family offices or fund of funds. Other venture funds are interesting targets just because we are top of the funnel for them. So, you know, particularly for a fund that rate 500 million plus AUM, it's really, really hard for them to play in the space that we play just because of the check size and how much capital they need to deploy uh, to move the needle for their fund. So they view us sort of like interesting feeders, so to speak, or deal flow. And what are the types of objections that come up when raising a business of this nature? What should one be prepared for when, if you're building a startup and a venture, you typically are going to go through the motions of speaking to venture capitalists, and some of them are going to be more or less receptive. It's usually a good idea to meet not-so-receptive investors because it allows you to fine-tune and really identify some of the blind spots. And getting early feedback and even negative feedback helps you calibrate the conversation. How should one think about it in your context? I guess I would say the current macro environment, notwithstanding, first-time funds are just hard just because a lot of the time you don't have returns to show. And it's hard to convince people that to give you their capital when there's no returns. Thankfully for us, we've been able to demonstrate some early successes based on our four years within SOSV. But I would say that as an early founder, and this goes back to when I was working at the private family office, we saw first-time funds all the time, and it was just really, really hard for us to pull the trigger, so to speak, on someone who has a fantastic resume and seemed very sharp, but it was just hard going out on a limb with no data as to whether they can actually perform and generate above market returns. So I would say that's one of the biggest hurdles. Another one is differentiation. I mean, it's interesting... Again, it, this might be part of where we are in the market cycle within crypto, but now all of a sudden with valuations coming way down, everyone wants to be early stage and everyone wants the cheap valuation. So it's been, it's harder for us. And maybe this is just us doing a bad communication, but it's hard for us to communicate just how early we are and just how different we are than others. So I would say to your point about t- talking to people that are skeptical, it just really helps you refine your message and communication. And then also another important thing is always ask for feedback. We tell our startups this, but always ask for constructive feedback. And we try and give whenever we tell a startup no, we offer to give them constructive feedback. And if they ask it, we'll give it to them. But that is gold in my view, because even if someone says no, 
and you ask for constructive feedback and, and they give it to you, it's really gold. So, yeah, I'm so thankful that you're emphasizing this point. There's a few things I want to unpack here. One is you clearly have an edge in this process, having sat on the other side, because you've been part of the decision making process and you understand the psychology on the allocator side into LP stakes, right? And back to your point about the chicken and egg problem of track record, despite having the right pedigree, where you are in the market cycle, some of the internal incentive structures that drive investment committees, for example, and how the rest of their portfolio looks like versus what you're pitching them. You've been on that side. And I think it definitely does give you an edge from that standpoint, I would think. Feedback. In an era of information overload, in an era of having five different messaging channels where we're hyper-connected, hyper-networked, I have found over the course of my career that the art of feedback, the art of no, has sort of been thrown out the window. And on some level, that's a pity because to your point, you use the word gold. I completely agree. Feedback is very important because it's going to help you understand why the market is not clearing. Sometimes it's going to make you understand why you don't have a relevant value proposition. And sometimes it's going to make you understand where your blind spots are. And I think we owe it to people who pitch us. And I'm speaking completely generically. So whether you're an investor, as an LP, if you're an investor in startups, I think it's very important to have this culture of giving feedback that people can act upon. I think it's a very important process. And I think it helps entrepreneurs. I think it helps first or second time fundraisers understand exactly where the pain points are. How much more complex is fund formation in the context of digital assets? Given the hybrid nature of the investments that are being made, some investments, and there's this notion in Web3 where because tokens are issued at an earlier stage in the business than would normally be issued in the case of an IPO with equity, for example, you're having much earlier price discovery on the wherewithal of the business and its viability as well as its usage as a product, right? So it introduces a lot of nuances. And from a fund manager perspective, as you think about your portfolio construction, but also all the operational considerations around managing digital assets, it's no longer just having fairly static private equity stakes, right? But you're going to have a mix of those as well as tokens. How much more complex is it than, let's say, a regular venture fund? I would say, thankfully, I haven't been too involved in the fund formation. That's Sean Broderick has mostly been leading the charge there. but. What I would say is that you need to have an offshore entity because most, just so you're prepared to invest in certain crypto startups that are raising and sometimes they don't take money from US investors. So you need to have an offshore entity. Right now, we've thought about distributions, for example, giving distributions in kind. And what we found is for the moment, we won't be doing that. And that's mostly because a lot of the LPs just, if they were to receive tokens, they don't want to deal with that headache of holding the tokens in a cold wallet or on an exchange and dealing with all that. So they would just, feedback we've received is receiving those tokens in cash. But of course, in the future, we'd be willing to change that should LPs want to receive tokens in kind. There's certain tax considerations as well. And you also have to think about, you have to be very rigorous 
you know, this really isn't in the LP documents, but you have to be really rigorous about security protocols, so to speak. So making sure everyone has got a hardware cold wallet, making sure you're using multi-sigs. We've been very, very careful about how much liquidity we keep on these crypto exchanges. So some of us have been burned way back when in the Mt. Gox scandal. So there was a lot of lessons taken from that. And as a result, we've been very careful about what kind of how much liquidity you keep on these exchanges. Most of the time, it's very, very little and making sure you're rigorous on that just so you don't subject yourself to another Mt. Gox or another FTX. So, and making sure everyone's got a fire safe, for example, and making sure everybody's not typing down their seed phrase for their cold wallet on their computer, you know, making sure they're writing it down and putting it in a fire safe and all those things. So I would say that's really where it gets complicated because we need to make sure everyone understands the implications there. It's definitely introducing some level of complexity for which despite the high potential of the technology, I think managers should be compensated for helping investors navigate those complexities. And it's both operational, but also from a portfolio management standpoint, if you think about it and get for listeners, try to get an idea, as you go through token generation events, that's how they refer to, in the life cycle of an early stage Web3 company, your portfolio, right, compared to traditional venture capital portfolio, depending on how it's structured, is going to have commingled there, both private equity stakes as well as lively traded tokens. And from a risk management and liquidity management standpoint, it raises all kinds of questions, right? You talked about distributions. That's one of them. Clearly, LPs are entrusting you for understanding this space. So presumably, many might want you to continue holding those tokens and manage that portfolio. And then it introduces all kinds of new questions. Should you basically, as you go through token generation events, do you put them in a separate vehicle? Do you offer investors a choice of, as you said, in-kind distribution, cash distributions, which are going to be delicate because there's definitely a price impact and negative signaling with liquidations, for example? Or do they want you to put it in a separate vehicle where you're going to be managing a publicly traded token portfolio, which again, is very different from a risk management standpoint than having a set of equity sticks, right? Yeah. What I would say is like, it also matters where you are in the fund. So if you're in year eight and investors want their money back, there's more of an incentive to start cashing out, I guess, just the nature of how funds work. But I will stress that when we get early stakes, liquid stakes in startups that we've invested in, we still maintain a super long-term view. So even though we might get liquidity within three years of our initial investment, we still hold on to the great majority share of our tokens. And of course, we have sold, we communicate this with the founders. So it's a two-way street. We want to make sure they're not caught off guard. And we want to make sure that we're not affecting particularly something. We just want to make sure we're not affecting the trading of the token. And we want to make sure, ultimately, we want to be have really close relationships with our founders at all times. And yeah, and so we still maintain that sort of venture view in the sense that, yes, we have liquidity. Sometimes we try and sell close to our cost basis, but we still maintain a great majority of the tokens because we think these things still have a lot of room to run over the next five to six years. And I'm glad to hear you say this because, again, for listeners to understand, tokens and I'll leave out the debate as to whether there are securities or not. I'm not an attorney and certainly not a regulator, but they have equity-like properties. 
as well as product reward properties tied to the tokenomics, right? And the economic subsystem with its own set of incentives that's built into a given application. And as such, when you do have a token generation event, you're having price discovery on a business that's yet to mature over time. I think it's important to understand that while you're able to perform some valuation and essentially provides participants with a price discovery mechanism, those businesses are still very immature, right? And I think it's important to take the long view and help investors stay the course and understand that despite the fact that they are traded, which is part of this new economy that we're creating with Web3, that being invested with a long view matters a lot. So onto the investment process itself, and I want to go over how you work identifying opportunities. You talked about hackathons several times in our conversations. It's something that you've mentioned repeatedly. But what is your approach to sourcing deal flow in general? And how do you think about creating the funnel? If you're able to give some idea of scale as to like how many entrepreneurs and ventures do you look at on a yearly basis? What does it come down to in terms of narrowing down the investment opportunities and which ones you eventually select? And then super interested to understand the selection process itself, which I'm keen to understand. Yeah. So for us, the way we see it, it's not very scalable, but it's a numbers game. So we look at a lot of hackathons and I forget how many occur a year, but ETH Global, Solana, Polkadot, all these layer one ecosystems typically run at least one or two hackathons a year. ETH Global is very prolific and runs certainly more than 15 or 20 hackathons a year. Depending on the hackathon, there could be 100 participants, could be 1,000 participants. We have an analyst. We have two analysts that essentially look through all these projects. A lot of them are tossaways, so to speak. They qualify ones that they think are interesting. And then I review those ones that they think are interesting. And I reach out to them either on LinkedIn or Twitter or Discord, or Telegram, really any kind of communication method that we can find to reach them. And then we jump on a call. And then, so to give you a sense of scale, I guess, so I think last year, and this is a leftover from our accelerator program, we also have like an apply button on our website that founders can go to and just hit apply and fill out some high-level information about themselves and the startup. So we also source startups through that avenue and then we have referrals as well, which are referrals from other PCs or friendlies in our network that think that, hey, this might be interesting. To give you a sense of the overall funnel, I think there was roughly 1,000 plus opportunities that we looked at in 2022. And then in terms of calls, around 30% of those 1,000 gets a call. And then after that first call, which is myself and the two analysts, 30-minute calls, I try and read up on the hackathon project. And so I have some idea of what they do. Usually give them the founders the opportunity to either I can jump right into my questions or if they want to go through their deck. And after that 30 minute call, I chat with the analyst. If we think it's interesting, we kick it to a second call, which is myself and Nick, not plant the other GP. We talk to the founder, Nick's co-founder himself, but he's also very technical. He has a developer background. So he really goes into the tech part of the business. And only out of, so again, 30% of those, roughly 30% get those initial calls. And for companies that get a second call, it's like roughly 5%. So there's a huge drop off there. So 
only around 5% gets that second call. If Nap and I like the startup, it's another 30-minute call. Then we get John Broderick on the call, which is the other general partner, for a third call. And that out of the entire funnel, out of 1,000, 36 get a first call. Roughly 5% get a second call. 2 or 1% gets a third call. And then less than 1% gets an offer. So that's the sense of the funnel, so to speak. It really is a numbers game. How important is it to have a deep network of other more established funds who would be willing to share and have you participate in the deal flow? The participation can be in several ways, right? You might actually lend expertise and help them diligence a deal and provide a second pair of eyes. You might at some point later on for deal flow to them. So how important is that network of co-investors as part of building your own business? I would say super important for VCs are kind of cheap in a way. So if there's some reputable VCs in a deal, all of a sudden, other VCs all of a sudden like that deal so much more. So it's super helpful, particularly on, at least in our case, there might be startups that we're sort of on the fence on and we're unsure of whether to give an offer or not. And we're just unsure. We sometimes ping our network of other investors that we think might find it interesting just to get their feedback. So it's super helpful to just bounce ideas off and either validate something or not validate something to see if they like it or to see if they don't like it because it helps us come to a decision. And of course, it's always great to have those relationships because sometimes they send us stuff and maybe it's too far along or not interesting, but it's a two-way street. And I'm sure they're using us in a similar manner that we're using them for just to do some due diligence and get feedback on things. So yeah. I think the power and the value of the network in this game is so critical. And that's why I wanted to emphasize this, having these key relationships that will matter at different stages of the venture process are critical. Going back to pattern recognition for a second and investment process, what do you typically look for in a team? And how do you control for those selection criteria? Yeah, great question. So founders, if you're listening to this, anybody pitching anything, you really have like two minutes, maybe less to convince someone. Like usually for, at least in my case, and probably because I've just speak to so many startups per year, I've pattern matched, but usually within two to three minutes, I can kind of get a sense of whether this is interesting or not. Too often I get on calls with founders, it's a 30 minute call and they talk for 29 minutes. And then I have to go to my next call and I'm like, well, I got to go. So what you're looking for is like, can they describe what they're doing in a succinct way? Are the founders too often? We speak to founders and they don't really have a great go-to-market strategy. Like, hey, yeah, we're building this trading app on optimism and our target market is retail users. And it's like, okay, how are you going to target these retail users? Why are they going to use your platform? So usually go-to-market is something where founders really haven't thought about. Like where we like to see startups focus on something super small as like a beachhead market and grow from there. So become really, really good at this small thing, then become really, really good at the second smallest thing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and grow from there. Too often startups want to come in and or founders pitch and like we're everything to everyone. And we're generally pretty bearish on that. And of course, we really focus on just with the nature of the space, making sure the team is technical enough to build what they say they can build. So yeah, I mean, that's what I would say. That's very helpful. Of course, I'm biased. I think I agree and support your approach. I think too many times or two things that happen and encapsulate what you just said. 
an inability to really understand how something you built is actually going to be relevant to fill in a white space and inability to articulate how it's going to get monetized. And then the other thing to your point is going too broadly. It's much too complex out there and there is way too much information and too many value propositions out there. If you actually don't have a focus on those beachheads, as you said, and this is valid not only at the early stage, but at a later stage in a business, at some point you need to be thought about as an expert in a specific field, then grow from there. If you look at Salesforce, they started as an SME cloud-based pioneer, and they are now this giant selling to large Fortune 500 corporations, right? But they had to start somewhere. And they did it, and they did it really well. And that allowed them to build progressively over the years to become an enterprise play. But they wouldn't have been able to start that way. So I think it's very important. I also like the fact that you started with go-to-market and product market fit and not the technology necessarily, because technology is a need to implement, right? It shouldn't necessarily drive unless you have some very, very unique technology that will have a lot of intangible value tied to the IP. What is your current assessment of early stage valuations right now as you look at deals? Well, they certainly have come down versus like 18 months ago when things were very high, even for things that have barely anything. I think founders were slow to realize this. Like I think 18 months ago, a starting point for a lot of seed deals or pre-seed deals was maybe at a 30 million or $20 million FDV. Things are starting to come down, particularly for the super early stuff, which is great for us in terms of sourcing early deals, because of course, you know, which investor doesn't like cheaper valuations, but more challenging for the startups that we've already invested in because they found that the market has come back. But yeah, that's what I would say. I'd say the market's come down and we'll see where it goes. So typically, Web3 startups have traded at a premium to other tech ventures. Part of the reason is the embedded TGE, I mean, the token generation event option there. A lot of deals are structured in a way that you buy equity in the business, but you get token warrants, for example, or there's usually side letter agreements there to give upside in the tokenomics. Do you have a feel for how the current regulatory uncertainty is impacting the value of that option? Or is it still very much that you're seeing higher valuations in Web3 versus other techs? Yeah, it is weird how there's a disconnect there. And maybe it is the token premium, or maybe it's just hype. I don't know. Our view, regulation is slow moving. And NAP, the other GP here at DLab, actually was one of the early co-founders of WeFunder and spent a lot of time with regulation as it pertains to startups gaining investment through the WeFunder platform. So he probably has a better view than I do. But you know, our view is that we just want to make sure that the founders are set up for correctly for the long term and not the short term. Because when you do these structures, you just want to make sure that it's something that you can fix later, that you're not creating. It's a problem that you can recover from and not something that's catastrophic, right? So regulation's a moving target. It's very, very unclear what, you know, it appears to be getting more serious, at least in the United States, in terms of what they're looking at and things like that with the news around Circle and all those things. But yeah, it's a moving target. And four years ago, it was different. And I'm sure four years from now, it's going to be very different as well. 
it's very helpful to hear it from you as well and give color to listeners. And look, it's difficult space to navigate. And that's also part of why ultimately it should accrue a risk premium to investors who best navigate this. What is your post-investment involvement and how do you participate in value creation? So again, for listeners, if you look at private equity, for example, they're very involved. They have operating partners, they have people on staff that will go in and and help management teams with value creation, right? Whether it's retooling the business, changing the organizational development path, addressing issues like go-to-market, product market fit, technology, you name it. At a venture stage, how do you do this? And you're also a small team. So how involved are you with your founders? Great question. Also, our solution is not very scalable, but our bread and butter basically we started out as an accelerator, which is very hands-on for three months and love that model because it was a lot of early stage startups and we frequently work with a lot of first-time founders and first-time founders don't know what they don't know. And we found that three months isn't enough time, ultimately. Like they need, some startups need three to nine months or 12 months. So when we first make our investment, we meet and by we, it's at least a partner and an analyst, but sometimes both two partners out of the three. We meet with our startups on a weekly basis for the first couple months. We have them set OKRs, which are very similar to KPIs for either the next three to six months. Those are mutually set. So usually we have the founders take a pass and review them. And then we all agree on being great targets. And during those weekly meetings, we like using them because it gives the meeting structure. So we start the meeting with the OKRs and then we get an understanding of what's going well, what's not going well, how we can be helpful and what we can do and who we can connect them to. And of course, giving our, our advice and two cents for what it's worth. And so that usually lasts somewhere between three to nine months. And then as the startups progress, they raise their second round, they continue to grow. Our skill set starts to become a little less valuable because they're more mature and they should be tapping into their later stage investors who have more experience dealing with larger companies, you know, we get in when it's like a two to three person company, and maybe they're growing to a 10 to 15 person company. And so there's different skill sets needed. But we still chat with startups, at the very least quarterly, but great majority of them still monthly, even four years after the fact. So we maintain a very close and tight relationship with our founders. But again, I talked to me in two or three years, I don't know how this is scalable, but I'm sure we'll figure out a way. I always say it takes a village to raise a startup. And again, glad to hear you say that, though it is not necessarily scalable at some point, writing a check is not the end of the story. I think a lot of teams struggle in some areas. I mean, no team is perfect or well-rounded or has all the skills in-house to execute. And having a network that can help them recruit, build from the top down, understand from an outside observer what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong is critical. So this advisory network that accompanies a business over time is so critical. What I would say and emphasize for me personally, like that's the fun part, being an early stage investor. It's just so much fun talking to all these different startups and being in the room and trying to help them solve problems and all those things. That's the real fun part. So, And I think it's a big difference between different styles and types of investing, I think in the venture space and also in the private equity space where you have a foot in the business, in the operations. Not that you're running the business per se, but you're interacting on a 
regular basis and sort of vicariously also living through the ups and downs and the passion that every team brings to the table. So I fully hear you there. And I think it's a very fulfilling over time as you feel like you're contributing to their success and helping them navigate. So we've talked about the investment process and how you approach building your portfolio. Now let's talk about what you're interested in. You have a thesis. What are the things you look for specifically and what are you excited about right now in the space? Yes, sometimes I feel like we're early, but the crypto space is still very, very early. And you know, sometimes we make the analogy that's probably been overmade at the moment, but it's kind of like the internet in the early to mid 90s when people were wondering, why do I need this? And the user experience was terrible and it was slow and very clunky experience. So we think it's not all too dissimilar from that. I mean, of course, there's some differences, but what we're really interested in is the real fundamental things that need to be built at an infrastructure level in order for a lot of these use cases that were hyped to come to fruition and for mainstream users to come to use it. So examples of that, for me personally, I think we really interested in wallet infrastructure. And what I mean by that is ways to abstract private public key cryptography to normal users so they don't have to deal with their address, which is impossible to remember and write down. Their seed phrases, also a very clunky user experience. What ties into that is also recovery of their wallets in case they lose their seed phrases or whatever it may be, how to do that in a trustless way. Also privacy around wallets. So for example, if if you think about 10 years in the future, and if you think I'm going to be using crypto to pay my dry cleaner, as things stand, if I were to use my one of my wallets and pay my dry cleaner, my dry cleaner would be able to go to Etherscan and see all my holdings and all my transactions. So it's kind of like giving my dry cleaner my bank account, which is a very poor user experience. So privacy around those transactions and privacy gets a bad name, but we think that compliant privacy for those use cases very important in order for us to onboard the next 5, 10 million users. On top of that, wallet infrastructure is scam protection or protection around when I connect my wallet, am I interacting with the right UI? Am I interacting with the right smart contract? Is the smart contract going to drain my wallet? All those things that we think information that can be bubbled up to the user when they connect their wallet or before they click a transaction. So those types of things I'm personally quite passionate about because I think it solves the key user experience problem. Account abstraction is something that's also super interesting because personally speaking, I have multiple wallets and it would be nice to bubble them up into sort of what you'd be managing them as a pain. And it would be nice to be able to share certain information with certain people. Maybe I want to share my NFT collection across my 10 wallets to somebody, but not my financial information. So being able to pick and choose what information I'm showing and that kind of bubbles up into sort of, this is a poor analogy, but that link tree type, like here's my profile, right? And have that show all my wallet holdings and all those things. So crypto still has a huge centralization problem. So a lot of crypto relies on Infura, for example, which relies on AWS. So those types of investments that are trying to decentralize that core piece of infrastructure very interesting. Of course, the cross-chain messaging and liquidity and how to do that in a trustless way is also very interesting. And there's a lot of startups working on this. And I still think DeFi is super interesting. It's not 
it's very out of favor now and probably because investors just have DeFi fatigue because personally, I feel like I've looked at a hundred DEXs and it's really hard to figure out what's the difference between them and your eyes kind of glaze over. But I still think finance is still a great early use case for crypto, you know, more so than gaming or the metaverse or all those things. That is very interesting. Thank you for outlining what I think is a robust set of views. What I read and between the lines here is really trying to play in all the building blocks, not at the core infrastructure level, but right above that are going to allow a broader development of applications, right? It's taking care of this baseline set of tools. We've talked about wallets and you've talked about privacy and you've talked about ease of use and you talked about interoperability. There is still at this stage, and back to your analogy of where we are in the cycle versus the internet days, what I personally would like to start seeing is ultimately a world where you've got a fully abstracted set of tools that application developers can tap into, irrespective of what's underneath, which might be purpose-built for a specific type of application, right? And so things like underneath having core common functions that are generic to use cases, having, to your point, strong interoperability between different islands in order to not just execute store, but also process things like liquidity, right? There are a lot of crypto-native financial primitives that ultimately belong lower down the stack so that we don't have to worry about some higher level implementation and the fragmentation that comes with it. So creating this baseline that will spur innovation on top of it, I think is fundamental, right? And we saw it in the internet, you know, a conjunction of these types of tools and APIs combined with the advent of mobile devices, I think were really what drove this massive wave of adoption, right? Because suddenly you were opening up usage to A, more users in different types of form factors and utilization schemes. And you also had an environment where you could start developing applications without having to re-engineering all those basic functions, right? Which is time consuming, right? Software, the history of software is one of abstraction layers. No one at this stage who's looking to launch a business has to worry about the lower level internals at the operating system level, right? Yeah, completely agree. Developer tooling, super crude in the crypto space and completely agree because it's in a lot of cases, it's a headache for startups because they have to do every single task. But in the Web2 space, so many of those things, as you noted, are abstracted away. So they can really just focus on the thing they want to build. So completely agree. And I think things are moving in this direction. I think everyone is very aware. It's rare for me to be in a conversation and have someone gloss over this. I think everyone is very focused on what is going to drive development and adoption. And simple things like, I think that there are applications just as simple as ETH Denver registration, getting your ticket, very seamless, right? The integration, the interaction with your wallet for something that is incredibly basic made it very seamless and it was enjoyable and it was completely detached from the underlying mechanics. So this is the type of world like we need to move to. Yeah. And also, as you point, everything is browser-based right now. And I would be shocked if 10 years from now, we're still using our browser to use all these applications. 
we really think that the future is going to be mobile for everything in crypto. So improving that mobile user experience. You know, I don't know if you've had the chance to play with any app on your mobile phone, but it's pretty crude. Another thing is just making that mobile experience native is also huge. That's still very early. I believe so. When we think about global adoption in other parts of the world, critical, right? Where the computer is definitely not the first step in the adoption process. So all these things put together, I think not only consideration, investment, and focus to get it to the right level of usability and adoption ultimately. So at this stage, what do you feel like you haven't accomplished yet personally? You're in the midst of building this great investment business. You're learning a lot. You said it's a lot of fun. You come across as being very excited and very focused on your mission. What is driving you at this stage and what do you feel you haven't accomplished yet? Might sound weird, but like I really think what we're building here at DLab is I really believe in what we're doing. I don't, what I'd love to accomplish is, you know, looking back 10 years from now, DLab is a place that has a great reputation for backing founders and being a true partner in founders and being a place that founders can come to for help and advice. Yeah, that's what I would say. That's what I would love to accomplish. So a legacy of having created value and having helped people along the way accomplish their goals and realize their vision. I think this is a noble cause and a big part of what should motivate, aside from the financial gain, people in the venture business, because it's truly, I think, one of the investment fields where you can be very fulfilled, not just from the financial gain and winning the trade, but also along the way, creating value, enhancing people's lives, both on the usage side of things, as well as the entrepreneurs, their teams, their employees. The value creation aspect and the fulfillment that comes with it is something that I find very compelling. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I've loved every part of it. I think it comes across as very thorough. It's very clear what your approach is and how you're differentiating yourself. And I think it's going to come along pretty nicely. I also like your investment thesis and how it plays in the value chain of what the crypto ecosystem represents. So I think it's going to be, as you said, a lot of fun along the way and arguably very successful because you do have a method as to how you're approaching your deal flow and how you're following through with building those businesses. So thank you very much again for participating. No, thank you very much. Always a pleasure chatting. So yeah, I had a lot of fun. So thank you. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.